Welcome to the Maharat Cast. My name is Rabba Remy Smith. I'm your host and producer coming to you from London. My guest this episode is Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold. Rabbi Rachel is the Director of Education and Spiritual Enrichment at Congregation Shar Hashemim in Montreal, one of Canada's largest shuls. She's also the first Orthodox woman to serve as clergy in Canada. Rabbi Rachel is the President of the Montreal Board of Rabbis, a Vice President of the International Rabbinic Fellowship, and she previously served as a member of the clergy at Anshe Shalom Bnei Israel in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Drisha Scholars Circle in New York and lives in Montreal with her husband, Rabbi Avi Feingold, and their three daughters. Tell me about your role in the shul. So, hi, I'm Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold. I live in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Um, came here by way of Brooklyn, New York, Boston, New Jersey, Chicago. <laughs> um, and I've lived in Montreal since 2013. I am one of the clergy at Congregation Shah Shemayim in this Mount neighborhood of Montreal. Um, I am the Director of Education and Spiritual Enrichment. Um, I fill the role of the Associate Rabbi in many ways. So I do a lot of rabbinic work in terms of sermons and teaching classes. Um, officiating life cycle events, being a halachic and pastoral resource to our community. And also in my role as director of education, I facilitate all of our programming for youth. So that includes overseeing our synagogue's preschool, our religious school, and all of our youth and young family programming around holidays, Shabbat, bar and bat mitzvah, teen program, um, anything that has to do with basically anyone under 18. And um, I also created uh, some programming for young adults in their 20s and 30s. So I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm losing the word. Like I, I, I want to say I minister to that. <laughs> Facilitate that, the young professionals program. Minister is a word that we should be reclaiming because it's what we do. Minister? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because the word to, to rabbi really should be a verb. We, we rabbi to people. We rabbi for people. We rabbi in service of people, of their needs. Um, and it's interesting that a minister is also a person who ministers. So I don't know what the, what rabbi is a verb. There, that's the title of the podcast episode. Yeah. Rabbi is a verb. verb. <laughs> rabbi is a verb. Love it. Rabbi Rachel had a unique journey to the yeshiva in that she actually started once she was already serving in the shul. I wanted her to tell me about her journey to the yeshiva. In many ways, my journey toward becoming a maharat maybe makes perfect sense on paper um, in terms of you know looking at my CV or my experience leading up to this role. Um, I studied at Boston University. I majored in religion. I then went to Drisha um, and graduated from the, th- the Scholar Circle, which at the time was a three-year program in Talmud, Jewish law and leadership. I worked in Chicago at a synagogue there in, in the capacity of assistant rabbi, um, though my title was education and ritual director. And after six years in Chicago, 
uh, I moved to Montreal at the same time that I was receiving my ordination from Maharaj. So I've been on a path, you might say, in hindsight. However, it did not, it, 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 I, I didn't experience, I didn't live it that way. I didn't live it in any linear fashion and still don't. Um, I knew I wanted to be in education, in Jewish education. I knew I did not want to be a classroom teacher because I wanted to be more creative and more experiential. I thought maybe I would work at a camp or run a Hillel someday. I didn't really know, you know, having graduated in religion and even having chosen to study religion, it was just because it was interesting. I also wanted to study English and music and biology and philosophy. And religion was the one that caught my eye um, and felt like it got to the core of what mattered most in societies. And I just thought that was fascinating to look at that both in terms of the Jewish religion as well as other religions. And I went to Drisha just thinking, okay, I'm gonna bide my time and figure out what's next in the world of Jewish education. And while I was there, I really thought I would go into theater education. Um, and I was teaching high school theater for a couple of years there. And ultimately ended up uh, leaving Drisha at a time that the questions of women in rabbinic leadership were really starting to burn in the community. And I remember in my third and final year at Drisha, speaking on a panel about women in Orthodox leadership, and I felt like the guinea pig. I felt like I said, okay, what am I going to do? Like, where am I going to get a job now? And to my surprise and uh, great benefit, Rabbi Asher Lopatin was also on the panel, said, give me a call. We're looking for an assistant rabbi. Although the, she, he didn't even use those words back then. We, we're looking to hire someone. We're not sure. There was an assistant rabbi who was leaving. And fast forward, I ended up becoming a member of the clergy. And there were four others in, um, in New York at the time who were serving as rabbinic leaders or religious leaders in synagogues, all with different titles, different credentials, no credential. I mean, I don't mean no credential. I didn't feel like I had a credential. I had a certificate from Drisha, but I didn't have a title or any smicha that was uh, you know, so far from reality still. Um, and, uh, and the five of us knew that we were it. Like we, we had no sense of, of, of unity, of, of career path. And when I say the five of us were it, that may be a little unfair because of course there were women in leadership and in teaching and guiding, whether they were Rebbitsons or high school moras. Um, there were, and have been for so long, so many women who have studied and taught and, and led and influenced. Um, I, I just wasn't sure that I, that I knew that I was one of them and that um, there was going to be a way forward in the pulpit. Uh, and I never looked for a pulpit per se. I was looking for a job. And I looked at Hillel and I looked at other places. So I, I realized only once I was accepting the job that this kind of role allowed me to use my organizational skills and my programming skills, and at the same time, teach Torah and help people. So it was, it was because the five of us, four in New York and me in Chicago, were in close touch um, that when Sarah Hurwitz had her conferral ceremony in March of 2009, she invited the other four to come to teach at her ceremony. I remember we were sitting in the front row supporting her. And 
it was after that all five of us went to lunch the next day and she basically said okay who's next but that was before she decided that that following summer to open the doors of yeshivat maharat and i wasn't sure that i wanted to formalize my training in that way un until it dawned on me that this would be the training for the job i was already doing and that could only help me and so um i was four days overdue with my first child at the orientation at yeshivat maharat long distance of course so i was sitting in chicago and that first year in september 2009 um i was part of the inaugural class and four years later all the while still working in chicago and you know, having had a lot of learning under my belt already, there were certain parts of the curriculum that I went through more quickly. But four years later, I was ordained in the inaugural class. And only then sort of did it hit me like, oh, this, this was historic, wasn't it? <laughs> it was it was seeing Sally Prezand at our graduation, and Blue Greenberg, sitting there in the second row, and getting up to speak about my having been at the first ever Jofa conference in 1997 as a 17-year-old, that I suddenly realized that, that the world had changed and that I got to be part of it. So, but I didn't set out, to, like, this is what I mean, like, it was not yeah. linear. I didn't set out to do any of that because it didn't exist. And I grew up in an Orthodox community in Brooklyn. And it just wasn't, it, it wasn't um, on my radar as an option. This episode is about bringing your whole self to the table. I want to differentiate it, though, from other episodes. This episode is not about coaching. That is Rabbi Nibracha's episode. And it's not about choosing positivity. That's Rabbi Sara's episode. This episode is about bringing all of who you are to the role you are in. I want to say something right there to, to frame it, if I, if yeah. I may. Go for it. Um, I think if we're going to talk about bringing our whole self to the work, it starts by acknowledging where we think we have to hide parts of ourselves in order to fill a role or to be something that somebody in our workplace or in our family or in a community thinks we're supposed to be. Coming to Chicago as a young newlywed in a young urban congregation, I sort of figured out, you know, how to bring myself. Although there were still moments, there were moments when um, I thought I had to, uh, how shall I say this? where I, I had to take a leap, but it was, it was really a lot of this was coming to Montreal to a very established institution, a very formal setting, um, a place that had a huge sanctuary that, that, that holds 2000 people and a choral service and a community that I felt very different from in many ways having not grown up in Montreal, having not grown up at the Shar, and having not had any experience with this kind of worship service, right? This kind of choral tradition and the formality of uh, expectations of, of, of clergy and of how we would speak and how we would act. And like, I, I learned very quickly that um, I felt, I felt, I don't know how to say this. I felt like I was putting on an act in order to fit in at the beginning. Just to clarify, feeling like an outsider, 
was this as a woman or as a person or maybe even as a rabbi? Okay, so here's an example, a very concrete example. This is a community that that really cares about dignity and appearance sometimes can go with that. And I started to hear when I would sit with a, a family at Shiva or sit with a family before a funeral and I would ask about their beloved deceased, you know, mother or grandmother, I heard many times, oh, she would never be seen without lipstick on. And that was really strange to me at first until I understood that what these families were saying was, um, and some of them articulated this really this way, um, she was so dignified, she was so elegant and so graceful that even in her final days, even when she couldn't leave her bed, she put herself together, she put on her lipstick, she wanted to look presentable, she cared about her dignity. And I started to notice myself wearing lipstick every day, <laughs> something that I had never done before. And it was, um, it was actually on a, a leadership retreat when I did the clergy leadership incubator. We were asked to bring one item that represented our leadership or I don't remember. And I, I brought my lipstick and I showed my lipstick to the group. <laughs> and I said, this symbolizes the roles that we play for other people the facade we sometimes have to put on, because I was not a daily lipstick wearer, and now suddenly I was. But it also represents understanding that sometimes we have to speak the language of our constituents in order to serve them and to be heard by them and to hear who they are. And I actually really have made peace. I love my lipstick now. I, I mean, I, I've got some great confidence when I put it on, and I, and I feel you know, I just, it just it has become part of who I am. But at first it felt like putting on literally a facade over who I was before. And I thought that was diminishing myself. That is about gender maybe, but it's also about understanding a community from the inside and then speaking to the community or not judging the community uh, for what, you know, my maybe preconceived notions might have been. I thought that putting on lipstick was hiding myself. And I had to learn that actually my true self was the empathy that I bring and the good listening that I can do to a family at a time of loss. And so I, I guess like I, I struggled for a while with putting on my makeup every day. As simple as that is, I struggled because I thought I'm being someone that I'm not. And it forced me to sort of whittle down to, wait, but who am I really? What are the parts of me that I really value and really care about? And, and that starts from the inside out. I'll give you another example. This has to do with sort of my very informal, friendly personality, which, which I, I think I it reflects my desire to make anyone I'm speaking to feel really comfortable. I want to make you feel comfortable. I want to bring down the level of formality. And that didn't work in a place where I, I remember so clearly I, I got up on Kol Nidre night. I think it, it may have been my first or second year. And I introduced whatever tefillah was next. And then I made a mistake, like I bumbled on the page announcement. And then 
I was stuck because I couldn't make a joke because there's a 13 member choir in white robes standing to my left with the cantor ready to sing um, and an entire array of clergy and officers sitting behind me on this, these giant um, chairs on the bima with their robes for the clergy or top hats for the officers. And the, the self that I was would be someone who would crack a joke. I actually ended up cracking a joke. It fell flat. I just didn't, I didn't know what that moment took. And I didn't have anything in my, my arsenal to speak to it. I couldn't match the formality and the gravitas because it's not who I was. And what I discovered was, first of all, being in a setting like that actually taught me gravitas. It taught me to stand, take my presence seriously, speak to a room with pomp and with presence that I simply didn't have before. So that gave me a new tool. And then it also has given me, um, it's taken me time to be brave enough to make a joke. I'm not saying that my, my colleagues don't make jokes to me. They, it was like just my, my previous language like didn't, didn't work, didn't seem to fit. And, uh, and I had to find a voice that would, that would be authentically me, but also fit the environment. And I also re recognized over the years that I didn't need the humor as much as I thought I needed it. That actually the part of me that is a deeper strength is not like, I'm, I'm not good at telling jokes. I don't have timing like that. Naturally, the part of me that really resonates for people is the part that holds a space for them that can show deep empathy and compassion. And like, it was only doing funerals that made me see that part of myself. It sounds like it took some learning to get to a place where she realized she could bring her whole self to her position. What does that process look like? How did you learn what to bring? I think that I had to ease up a little on my self-judgment. It wasn't only in Montreal, it was also in Chicago. If I made a mistake, I would really beat myself up about it. So I remember one day in Chicago, I remember it even though it was probably 2008. So that's more than 12 years ago now. And I remember the day I got up to introduce the, the Parsha and I said the wrong Parsha. And I said, this week's parasha is Shoftim. We're about to read it. And God bless Rav Asher, my colleague. He went, oh, it's actually Ray. And I know that my head was in Shoftim because he was going to be away the following Shabbos. And I had so much that I had been preparing for Shoftim. And I prepared an introduction to Shoftim, but it was Ray. And I stood there and felt like falling through the floor. And I, I had nothing to say. And I just, I, I sat down and just beat myself up for it, for having made a mistake. And he got up and introduced the Parsha instead. And then I tried to save myself by introducing like another Aliyah later on and talking about something else in the Parsha. Uh, but I still feel like that shame for having made the mistake. And that was the same shame I felt for having made a mistake on Kol Nidre night at Shara Shemayim, which is a 175-year-old synagogue with 2,000 people gathered. Like, oh, just felt like a punch in the gut. And um, I have had to work on softening that and it was um, actually a, a colleague and mentor of mine who told me, like who helped me sort of replace my self-talk because every time I would sit down after speaking, I would say, oh, 
that didn't come out the way I wanted. That wasn't really how I wanted to deliver that, whatever. Um, it didn't land the way I thought it would. And instead, um, she said, that's a drop in the bucket. Like, that's not your one chance to, to impress anyone. And I'd say, but what if there's a guest there? And that is my one chance for them to hear me. And she said, okay, so what? So now I was able to slowly replace that self-talk of like, oh, I failed with, okay, wasn't my best, wasn't my worst. And it sort of opened up the possibility of me taking more risks. And that I would say, being allowed to take more risks, I was just listening to Brene Brown, right? Bringing my vulnerability, that's like her thing. Her Torah is the Torah of vulnerability. Um, bringing my vulnerability made me feel safer to bring more of myself and not to worry so much about whether it was perfect. And, and that's just as much coming from my environment, by the way, because, because the Shar is a place of excellence and we are all perfectionists. And that's why we run an incredible institution um, for our you know, 1,350 households, plus many others in Montreal and beyond who look to the Shar for all kinds of programming and services. Um, we care about excellence. And that environment of excellence was just feeding my perfectionism in a very unhealthy way. Once I started to soften the boundaries of that, I, um, I found that I could have more impact because I could bring more of my authentic self. So here's a, a, another example. Um, the Shar is one of the few synagogues, as I mentioned, that has a deep choral tradition and still um, and still maintains that tradition. So we have an entire music department with a music director, with a world-class cantor, with the history of Leonard Cohen and the album of Leonard Cohen, uh, you know, featuring our synagogue choir. And, um, and our choir is simply the best in the world. That's, and that's an objective statement. It's the best synagogue choir in the world. <laughs> I'm sure there are some who would quibble, but that's because they don't really know synagogue music. I'm kidding. So it's, it's something that, that is a great pride of our congregation. And every Shabbat morning, when we're not in COVID, um, every Shabbat morning, our, our cantor and choir lead a beautiful choral service. They take some time off in the summer, but by and large, um, they're, they're there every Shabbat. And certainly for special events. And for me, coming into that institution as a, someone who was a singer and who cared about music and who had always identified very deeply as a musician, I knew I couldn't bring that part of me. I, I'm the kid who had music notes and a piano around my bat mitzvah invitation. Like this is as long as I can remember. Music was who I was. I led choirs. I, I, I participated in all sorts of, of choral gatherings. But I came as, as the rabbinic staff and there is a very definite boundary between the side of the bima that speaks and the side of the bima that sings. And even when I tried a couple of little musical moments, like I, I just didn't feel like it was a safe place to do that. It, it took years. It took the growth of the, my relationship with our music staff who very much support me actually. And once I started having this conversation with our music director, you know, I wish there were places where I could sing or do something musical. And, and once I actually, you know, got up the guts to talk to our cantor about what I, I could do, I realized they weren't as judgmental as I was of myself. And, um, and I, really it was about me giving myself permission to find a place where I could use my love of music in my role. And it took till my 
eighth year in the synagogue, my 15th year in the rabbinate, no, 14th year, where am I? For me to offer a class um, where I brought Broadway musicals in conversation with Jewish texts. And it has been a joy for me and for my learners. I've never had such an enthusiastic response from my class. That's the weekly class that I've taught for years. And sometimes we do Talmud and sometimes we've done Tanakh. And, and, and the Broadway musicals class, I'm calling it Lessons in the Lyrics, um, is sort of the end of, of that journey. Like the, the year before I did something called Where Text Meets Life. And I realized that what I really love about learning text is where it comes into conversation with something authentic in me or in my learners or in the world. And we did five Megillot that way. Um, but it, it, it was about not trying to be too serious, not trying to be too perfect, doing a lot of journaling about the things I really cared about and, and then saying, what the heck, it's pandemic. People need to like lighten up a little. Let's do some Broadway. And it's been amazing. Yes, I, I'm trying to balance like my own experience, which is particular to a clergy role with an understanding that I think everybody struggles with this. And there are many roles that every one of us plays, maybe as a, you know, as a professional, but also as a parent or as a spouse or as a friend or as a child. And I think we have pre preconceived pictures, preconceived notions of what those roles need to look like or sound like or be like. Um, so I think we, we, we all have this judging we do of ourselves in whatever role we step into. And it might also be reinforced by the people around us. Um, and certainly as a woman who's stepping into a rabbinic role, there, not that there were expectations of what that role would look like. I just couldn't imagine what that role could look like because I hadn't ever seen it. Tell me more about why other people might not bring their whole selves to a role. Here's the thing. Some of what also p makes us feel like we have to be in a box or puts expectations on what our role might look like are, are structural limitations or people's perceptions, or people's assumptions. Um, there's a lot of like the big they out there that we imagine. And sometimes we imagine it and sometimes it's real. And what I mean by that is people's eyes are on us if we're getting up in front of a crowd. It's so scary to put yourself out there and, and know that you're being watched and there are expectations of what you're gonna sound like or who you're gonna be, or whether you're gonna be good, effective, and, and it's scary. And whether that happens in reality or whether it happens in our minds and whether it's in front of a crowd of a hundred people or two coworkers in the next cubicle, we know that people have expectations of us. And that makes it harder to be our true self. And that makes it harder to be good at what we're doing because it's the uh, evaluation apprehension is like that. That's the psychological term for it. And what I learned to do was to literally just clench in my abs, speak from my core, look at the back of the room at the wall and not at the people if I had to, and, and very consciously bring all of the tools that I knew that I had, compassion, voice, tenor of my voice, um, um, wisdom, everything that I had written, everything, and just speak it from my gut. And I found that if I could tap into my gut while I was standing up there under scrutiny, if I could speak from my kishkis, that's the technical term for it, that, that, I was, that I was using my fuel and that would be the closest thing I could get to just bringing all of me, to bringing my authentic self. 
to bring you all the talent that I knew that I have. So it's about like, speak from your core, know your core. I know that I've written something beautiful and I'm going to deliver that a hundred percent. And I'm going to stay laser focused on what I'm here to do. And the rest of it is noise. What are the dangers of not bringing your whole self to the table? Yeah, I think when you don't bring your whole self to your role, a little of you dies inside. A little part of you, or maybe many big parts of you, um, shrivel up and a little part of you atrophies. And even as a mother, when I've been stressed and just going through the motions and not being myself, it has a negative impact on my kids. But when I push myself to like write a little note in their lunchbox, of whatever, of something I would say to them, um, or I just recently started doing this, like I, if I'm driving them to school, Avi does much more of the driving, but we try and, we try and split it. And we have about a 15 minute drive to school. Um, and we listen to a little kid news podcast. It's like a seven minute podcast. And then I just started doing this. I like, just as an expression of my own creativity, I would just start. And now welcome to Ima News. Today is Tuesday. Da, 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 da. And like, I do the same format as the, as the podcast that we listen to. And now they beg for it <laughs> because it's just a little ounce of true creativity of spontaneity of myself that I just brought out to them. And I say, you know, this week will be Purim and on Wednesday we'll be having a da, da, da. And on Thursday we'll be going to, you know, and like those little moments are just sparks of authenticity of bringing the full self to whatever, whatever the role is that we're playing in that moment. Recently in a fellowship that I met, the speaker was discussing that when we feel like we belong, we are actually 50% more productive in our jobs. It sounds like she's saying the flip side of this. The feeling of not belonging can have a serious impact on our productivity. I wanted her to reflect on that. Yeah, something I care about a lot is belonging. I've been an outsider in many different circles. So when you say, you know, if you're not bringing, if you don't, if you don't feel that you belong, then you're not being productive. I struggled with that for a long time. Do I really belong in this role? Do I really belong in this community? Do they think I belong? Um, even when they say they love me, do, do I really belong? I sometimes standing up there on the bima on a Shabbat morning doing the prayer for Israel, like look at myself and say, oh my God, what am I doing here? This is so weird. <laughs> because, because I didn't grow up thinking that I belonged in that role. So we're even other to ourselves as women in, in new roles. And yet, the more we can drop those expectations, which are just creatures of our imagination, right? They're not, they're not real. They could, they could be real to us if we live them, but we can just as easily drop the expectations, be in the moment and bring our full self to the table and say, yes, I belong here and you belong listening to me and we're going to belong doing this together. Like it's a more, it's, it is, it's a more productive moment. I mean, how can I be contributing to a meeting if I'm not bringing all of my ideas? How can I be singing if I'm not singing with my full voice? I mean, there's so many ways I could parse that. I want to dig a bit deeper into the gender piece here. She mentioned that women are especially prone to feeling that they don't belong. And I think for so many women, the voice of not belonging is not in their heads. 
It's a real voice that people speak either quietly or loudly. As a woman who has gone through this, I wanted to hear her take on why so many women suffer from this and what can be done. I hesitate to say any sentence that starts with women are because many women are and many women are not. And now we're gendering all the people who identify with that gender. The way I experienced it is that when you're a woman filling a position or a role that women haven't necessarily filled that often before, people who want to be supportive will often praise you in the context of being a woman. And that is actually othering you or making you question whether you belong. Like, wow, I'm so excited that our, our, our synagogue finally has a woman on the clergy. You're so amazing. And then you think, do they think I'm amazing because I'm the first woman? Or do they think I'm amazing because I'm actually bringing something worthwhile to the table beyond my gender? Um, the praise, even the praise that comes when it comes in the form of praising you, when it comes in the context of your gender, taints the praise a little bit. And we should never be dependent on the praise. But what I mean by that is, inevitably, when I officiate a funeral for a woman, the family says, oh, this is just perfect because grandma was such a feminist and she would have loved to know that you were the one officiating her funeral. It's just meant to be. What a perfect fit. <laughs> what does that have to do with me and who I truly am? So, so gendering us denies so many other things that we are and makes us question what our expertise really is, what our skills really might be other than being the woman in this role, the woman on the bima. This episode is sponsored by Yesh Tikva. Yesh Tikva, Hebrew for There is Hope, was established to end the silence and create a Jewish community of support for all Jewish people facing infertility. Yesh Tikva provides free professional psychological services, resources, and tools to those struggling with infertility and it raises awareness and sensitivity on the subject throughout the Jewish community. For more information, visit them at yeshtikva.org. That's Y-E-S-H-T-I-K-V-A dot O-R-G. And follow them on Instagram and Facebook for some excellent educational content. It sounds like for women, a big issue is not just feeling able to bring all of themselves to the table, but actually having to carry too much because they carry the expectations and hopes and dreams of those around them. And admittedly, this is not an issue that is unique to women. But I'm curious, how can people bring themselves, whichever parts of themselves they choose to bring, and not have to deal with bringing everyone's expectations and baggage along as well? I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> I don't know how to differentiate. Um, so I've been working with a coach whose, um, whose focus is, whose background is in neuroscience and positive psychology and whose experience is in um, leadership in Jewish nonprofits and whose clientele are primarily women leaders in Jewish nonprofits. And she has helped me through a process of finding what's called in the field, your signature strength. And there's a whole science of this, of what your signature strengths are. And along with knowing your signature strengths, which are not skills that you've acquired, but 
things that, that come from your kishka, like I said before, that come from the kishkas from the deep inside you, things that you were born with, proclivities that you just are, no matter where you've been. They, when you are in your best self, these are the strengths that are shining through. And along with the signature strengths, we've been working on clarifying my deepest held values. When I, are, when I am clear on my values, which are my compass, which are the things I care most about, and when I know what strengths I bring to the table that are uniquely mine, and I have a sense of purpose, that's the third. So there are values, strengths, and purpose. I find that it's, it's, it's really a process of self-knowledge that then when I have those things clear for myself, I bring them to my work and I bring them to my relationships. It's a fear of, of evaluation and a fear of not being, of, here's the fear. If I bring my whole self and they don't like that, then I'm really a failure. Like if I was hiding 33% of me, I'm less vulnerable. And if they don't like the big they who rule the world, don't like, or if it, or if it flops, then I haven't really risked as much. But if I bring my full self, and it doesn't land, that's really scary. So the problem is, is that you then never get to the point where you bring your full self and you don't get to learn that when you bring your full self, you don't give a crap. You actually care so much less because it feels so good to be inhabiting your full trueness that, that actually, first of all, it will land better. It will be received and it, you, you care less about whether it might not be received because you've manifested something true and real and deep about yourself. Your neshama is, is, is glowing, right? And it doesn't even matter whether someone's on the other end to catch that because that is the end in itself. This idea really resonates with me that we hide parts of ourselves to protect ourselves. I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Van Ness, the hairstylist and activist from Queer Eye. In his book, he talks about the feeling of shame, and he describes it as the feeling of, if you only knew X about me, you could never love me or accept me. It sounds like what Rabbi Rachel is describing is the same thing. Maybe we don't bring our whole selves to the table because we carry shame around certain things. I think there's another thing at play in what you described just now about like, if you only knew this, right? There's a whole group of people who are judging me and whether they are real or imagined um, or they're part of the history of this organization, you know, then they, I can't, I can't bring that to that place. And there's a really important piece here, um, which is the structures that we feel we are also under scrutiny of. So I may be willing to say something very real, very authentic in one space, but when I walk into a hundred year old building and walk up to the bima where this rabbi and that rabbi and this program and this speaker and all of these generations of people have, have sat or have taught and then bring my authentic self there, I'm bearing myself not only to the people in the room, but to a hundred years of history. 
And they're, if they're in the room, if the people in the room are on board, for sure the hundred years of people before them are not. And we carry that, if I sit in the, 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 the chair in the boardroom and say those things, then the boardroom is judging me or everything that that boardroom represents. Or if I inhabit this position, you know, this job title, this, this vice president position, right? That, that, um, that title is, is, is judging me. Like there are so many systemic um, structural barriers in place to bringing the true self that it, it makes it doubly hard. And I think that's where some of the wisdom of um, pastoral presence or of, of, of rabbinic role uh, comes into play that I think can apply to a lot of people. You know, it's okay to know the difference between the role and the person and to understand that I'm stepping into a role and I'm bringing this to my role because this is what the role demands, even if I'm afraid as a person. Whoa, I need to hear that again. It's okay to know the difference between the role and the person and to understand that I'm stepping into a role and I'm bringing this to my role because this is what the role demands, even if I'm afraid as a person. I had a psychologist who, who works with um, rabbinic stress. His, his, his PhD research was in rabbinic stress. <laughs> we all need to talk to him. Uh, he's a rabbi and a psychologist and has been in the field for many decades. And he said the number one uh, reducer of stress for rabbis is to be able to differentiate between role and person to know what I need to be when I step up on that bima, even if I as a person may feel differently or may, and, and it's not about being deceptive or duplicitous, but accepting that I'm stepping into this space, even if I may feel inadequate to it, or even if I may not wanna be vulnerable to it, or even if this history is too much for me to bear, or even if I never signed up for being the first woman to be hired as Orthodox clergy in the country, right? I, I can carry all of that and have it just be there. And it doesn't have to weigh on me because I, 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 I can just, I can be that person. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rachel, for this interesting and inspiring episode. As always, please check out our other episodes if you haven't seen them. And if you have listened to them, they're better the second time. We would absolutely love to hear your feedback. Please be in touch with us at maharatcast.yeshivatmaharat.org. That's M-A-H-A-R-A-T-C-A-S-T at yeshivatmaharat.org.